Well, good morning once again, and welcome back to the Gospel of Matthew. I think it's been about a month since Matthew was last taught from this pulpit. A bit of background of the book of Matthew to set the scene for the passage under consideration today. Matthew presents Jesus as king, but not just any king. Matthew writes with a Jewish perspective to a Jewish audience. Matthew presents Jesus as a Jewish king who was promised in the Old Testament. And Matthew makes this clear from his opening words, the opening words of the Gospel of Matthew, which say a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And what follows is an excitingly important list of names. And included in the list of the family line which produced Jesus is a prostitute who believed God's promise, a Gentile woman who converted to the Jewish faith, and kings who did evil. But as is written in 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 19, this is what God did. Nevertheless, for the sake of his servant David, the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah. He had promised to maintain a lamp for David and his descendants forever. In other words, the light of the world, the promised Messiah, the Savior, would come from this line of sinful, wicked people. What an amazing genealogy of a Messiah. Now to prove to the Jews, to assure the Jews that Jesus was the promised long hoped for Messiah, Matthew quotes extensively from the Old Testament. Now, there are different ways to define what is a quote from the Old Testament, but it seems that no matter what definition is used, Matthew quotes from the New Testament, from the Old Testament, far more than any gospel writer. One example, in blueletterbible.org, it has 96 Old Testament quotes from Matthew compared with 34 in Mark, 58 in Luke, and 40 in John. So yes, as we know, there are four Gospels, four different accounts of the birth, the life, the miracles, the teaching, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I want you to be encouraged. That's a strength of the Christian faith. It's a complement to the truthfulness of the Bible that we have four different accounts of the life of Jesus. Now, Henry Van Dyke was an American author and professor and minister in the early 1900s, and he wrote this. If four witnesses should appear before a judge to give an account of a certain event, and each should tell exactly the same story in the same words, the judge would probably conclude not that their testimony was exceptionally valuable, but that the only event which was certain beyond a doubt was that they had agreed to tell the same story. But if each man had told what he had seen, as he had seen it, then the evidence would be credible. And when we read the four Gospels, it's not that exactly what we find. The four men tell the same story, each in his own words. Therefore, because every single Jehovah's Witness around the world gives exactly the same answer to the same question, that, my friends, is brainwashing. That is powers at the top of an organization instructing those below what to say. 
So also within Christianity, actually, it's good and it's healthy that we have disagreements, for example, over creation evolution or over the order of events surrounding the second coming of Jesus. It shows that our love, our unity, our strength is not based on human intellect or human agreement. No, what got us together, see, what, what binds us together, what keeps us together is Jesus Christ himself. It's the grace of God in us. Well, back to Matthew. There are three Theses statements, three truths on which the entire book of Matthew hangs and and therefore on which the passage under consideration today hangs. Now, the way these truths work, it's it's similar to the plot of a movie. So this is a spoiler alert. If you're planning on watching the uh, the new Marvel Studios movie, Black Panther, you might want to plug your ears or just talk to the person next to you. Now, the Black Panther is crowned king of his tribe. He discovers that a close relative has been badly and wrongly treated. And once that truth about the near relative is revealed, the entire movie changes in response. Activities and attitudes and events occur in response to that revelation. Events and activities which could not and would not have occurred earlier, including a challenge to the Black Panther's throne. And that's simply how plots in movies work. It's how plots in the opera work. It's how plots in book work. And it's how plots in the Bible work also. So what are those three truths? Well, the first of these three truths in Matthew's that Matthew hangs on has already been told you. They are the opening words of the gospel, which state that Jesus is a Jewish king, the promised Messiah from the Old Testament. And the rest of the Gospel of Matthew supports and proves, responds to, illustrates, and demonstrates that truth that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Well, the second thesis is in the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 through 7. Turn to Matthew chapter 7, please. Let's have a quick look at this second truth, this, this second thesis of the Gospel of Matthew. Now, in Matthew chapter 7, in that Sermon on the Mount, Matthew records Jesus making statements such as, you have heard that it is said, but I tell you. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, look, this is what your Jewish tradition has held to. This is what your Jewish teachers have taught you. This is what you believe. This is what you think it means. But let me tell you what that law really means. And look at verse 28 of Matthew chapter 7. It says, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority. You see, what Jesus did was he took authority over everything precious to a Jew. Uh, The temple, uh, the Levitical priesthood, uh, the law. And then what he does, and this is the second thesis, what he does is is he says, all of that points to me. That's the second major thesis of the book of Matthew. So, for example, uh, look at verse 14 of chapter 7. He says, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And then throughout the book of Matthew, 
Matthew points out that Jesus himself is that small gate. Jesus himself is that narrow road. For example, look at verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, to Jesus, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. In, in indicating that entrance to the kingdom of heaven is not through the laws, not through the temple, not through the rituals, but through Jesus. Look at verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, the words of Jesus himself give life, not the temple sacrifices. And when, when, when Jesus heard, when, when the crowd heard these words, they were amazed. You see, no other religious teacher in the history of mankind has ever pointed to themselves as the source of life. Every other religious teacher points to laws or rules or traditions or rituals or a God or inner strength within yourself. No wonder the crowds were amazed as they heard Jesus say these things. And so Matthew, like I say, he begins to record statements with, which echo and support and remind and continue to reveal this truth that life is found in Jesus, not in the temple. And again, look at Matthew chapter 12, verse 6. To support that truth, Matthew records Jesus saying this. I tell you, Jesus says, that one greater than the temple is here. You see, to the Jews, salvation was found in the temple, in the rituals of the temple, the ceremony of the temple, the law. And so, so for a Jew reading Matthew, this statement in Matthew 12, 6 would not make sense if it was placed before the Sermon on the Mount or if the Sermon on the Mount was not included. It's sort of like in that Black Panther movie, uh, the challenge to the Black Panther's throne would not have made sense without the revelation that the one making the challenge was that near relative who was wrongly treated. Well, how about the third thesis? The third thesis is recorded in Matthew 16. And look at verse 15 of Matthew chapter 16. There Jesus is asking a question about himself, of his disciples. Verse 15, but what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? In verse 16, Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And in verse 18, Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church. And look at verse 21. Matthew records, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day, be raised to life. And that's the third thesis, the suffering savior. He's a suffering savior. He will be killed. He will be crucified, but he will be raised to life. And Jesus wanted his disciples to know this. Matthew wants the Jews to know that the plan of God from the beginning, it was prophesied in the Old Testament, the Messiah would be a suffering savior. His death was part of God's plan. His death and resurrection would accomplish what the ritual and the temple worship and animal sacrifice could not accomplish. So with those three theses in mind, let's read together Matthew 17, verses 24 through 27.
After Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma temple tax came to Peter and asked, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Yes, he does, he replied. When Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. What do you think, Simon? He asked. From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own children or from others? From others, Peter answered. Then the children are exempt, Jesus said to him. But so that we may not cause offense, go to the lake and throw out your line. Take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you will find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. So what can we learn from these four verses? Well, the first thing I draw your attention to is that Jesus is a Jewish king. Now, this temple tax was established by God through Moses in the book of Exodus. It's a tax collected from every Jewish male aged 20 years and older. They were all required to contribute. The tax was collected for the upkeep of the temple. This was a law from God. Now, if you do uh, some research or or reading on, on the Jews and their expectation of Messiah today, you will easily and quickly discover something very interesting which ties itself to today's scripture reading. Now, I'm speaking of the Jews who are not Christians, Jews who do not believe that Messiah has appeared yet. Central to these Jews is the law and the temple. Interestingly, that means that Messiah is actually not central in their thinking. Now, Messiah is vital because what Messiah will do is he will come, according to these Jews, and reestablish the law and the temple. That's what the unsaved Jew, the Orthodox Jew, is, is looking for. And you hear that, and you, you, you realize that the unsaved Jew of today is very much like the Jew in Matthew's day. For the Jew in Matthew's day, any Jewish teacher or rabbi or religious leader, especially the Messiah, well, he would uphold and, and maintain and teach and do what the law required. Therefore, for Jesus to have any clout with the Jews, he had to be seen fulfilling the law. He had to live as a Jew. And that's exactly what we read Jesus is doing. In fact, during that second thesis, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew prominently includes Jesus saying this, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, unfortunately, such a a vital statement uh, to the unsaved Jew would have absolutely no clout with those Jews because it's the New Testament. And the Jews of today who are unsaved don't believe in the New Testament. But if an unsaved Jew today ventured to read those words from the Sermon on the Mount, and also read the words we read today about Jesus paying the temple tax, something would begin to stir. Something would resonate in their heart. And in that unsaved Jewish mind, they could at least begin to consider that as this Jesus is so Jewish, he could possibly, maybe at least, be my Messiah. Now... Jesus is a Jewish king, but the second thing I wish to draw your attention to is the fact that Jesus is king 
of kings. Now, for the Gentile, that's everyone who's not Jewish by race, the Gentiles aren't concerned with a savior who keeps the Jewish law, but Gentiles are concerned to have a God who is perfect in every way. I hear that on the doors all the time. In fact, I'm convinced that the number one hobby of every Gentile who is unsaved is criticism of God. We hear it all the time. For example, every unsaved Gentile asks, why doesn't this supposed loving God stop suffering? So the Jew is awaiting a Messiah that upholds and does the law. Uh, the Gentile is looking for a blameless God. And Jesus paying the temple tax fulfills both images. For the Jew, Jesus is Jewish. He's not a lawbreaker. Uh, for the Gentile, uh, Jesus is not a rebel or a tax dodger. Jesus is the light of the world. He is savior for both the Jew and the Gentile. And he says as much in verses 25 and 26 of Matthew chapter 17, where he declares that he is the king of kings. He says in verse 25, when Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. What do you think, Simon? He asked, from whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes from their own sons or from others? From others, Peter answered. Then the sons are exempt, Jesus said to him. All Jesus is saying here is that it's, it's normal. Look, it's, it's, it's usual for the sons of a king not to have to pay tax. So here's a question for you. Who runs the temple? Who owns the temple back in the day? Who was in charge of the temple? Well, any Jew would tell you. And in fact, when you read the Bible, you easily discover God was in charge of the temple. The temple was God's domain. The priests who served there were serving God. They were approaching God. They were under God's domain. So what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, that God is my father. I, therefore, am not required to pay the temple tax. You see, and in saying that God is his father, Jesus is equating himself with God. Jesus is declaring himself to be the almighty, the Lord of lords, the king of kings, king of the world, both Jew and Gentile. Salvation is found only in him. So he's a Jewish king. He's king of kings. But the third thing I'd like for you to take note of is that his kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom is not of this world. Look at the opening words of verse 27. But so that we may not offend them. That's a powerful, powerful statement. Remember the third thesis of Matthew? Uh, the whole book is hanging on this third thesis as well as the other, uh, the other two. The third thesis, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed on the third day and be raised to life. Let's think logically about this. If you are a king with all power and you want to establish your kingdom, yet you know there would be priests and teachers and elders who would oppose you and kill you, wouldn't you think that such a king would get rid of those enemies? That's not what Jesus does. This 
this humility of Jesus, this, this submission to enemies, it's not appropriate behavior. It's not expected behavior if your kingdom was of this earth. His kingdom is not of this world. Now again, the unsaved Jew in Matthew's day and the unsaved Jew today, they are remarkably similar in expectations of the Messiah. Listen to this. I took this from a Jewish website. This is what was written on it. Their expectation of the Messiah. Remember, they don't think the Messiah has come yet, but this is what they're looking for. They say the Messiah will not cause any change in the commandments, nor will he add to them or subtract from them. He will certainly not start a new religion, nor will his followers start a new religion. So remember, Matthew quotes lots from the Old Testament to show the Jews with this mindset that this Jesus is their Messiah. This Jesus has fulfilled the commands. He's not changed them. And in fact, everything in Judaism points to Jesus. Jesus is not establishing a new religion. But this is really the realization of what true Judaism is. Everything points to Jesus. He is the king of kings. He is the Jewish king, but his kingdom is not of this world. Now, Matthew was wealthy. He was probably the wealthiest and most educated of the, of the disciples. And in Matthew chapter 9, when Jesus had said to Matthew, follow me, Matthew got up immediately and followed Jesus, leaving all that wealth behind. See, Matthew experienced something in his conversion, and he did something, and this is what he wants to express to his Jewish audience. He wants them to give up the shadows and the symbols. And that's what the temple and the law, that's how they're described. Matthew wants them to do what he did, follow the reality, Jesus. A real Jew would follow Jesus. Well, at least seven times, Matthew mentions Jesus' own predictions of his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. Matthew wants the Jew to know that's the plan from the beginning, that Jesus is leaving this world. And remember when Jesus was leaving the world? Remember Jesus on the cross? He said things that were striking. And there was a Roman centurion there, remember? And, and this centurion has probably seen hundreds of people die in the same way Jesus died. But as the centurion watched Jesus and listened to Jesus, he knew there was something different about this man. There was something unique about this death. And he declared, surely, surely this man is the son of God. Some scholars are thinking maybe that's the conversion of this centurion. But what we do know is there were two thieves who were crucified on each side of Jesus. We know that one thief was heckling and mocking, making fun of Jesus, criticizing Jesus, and he carried on along that path. The other thief started off heckling Jesus and mocking Jesus and making demands of Jesus but as he observed Jesus, as he watched Jesus, as he listened to Jesus, he was convinced also there's something different about this man hanging next to me. And he changed his mind about Jesus. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. You see, the significance of that incident on the cross was that Jesus was demonstrating, again, his kingdom is not of this world. He didn't 
heal this thief next to him who believed. He didn't allow him to escape the punishment. Jesus' kingdom is not about physical healing. He didn't condemn and judge the Roman centurion who was killing him. Instead, he said, Father, forgive them. You don't do that and say that if your kingdom is of this world. <coughs> Jesus' plan was not to change the structures that made society unfair. Here's Jesus hanging on the cross, totally, totally unfair treatment. He did not deserve that. He had done nothing wrong. Jesus' kingdom is not to change society so that it's more fair, more equal. That's not what his kingdom is about. His kingdom is about changing people's hearts. It's changing people's soul. It's drawing people unto himself, the light of the world. And then one day, our faith will become sight. One day, Jesus is going to come again. He's going to come as judge. He will be the condemner. He will be the criticizer. He will eradicate all evil. And physically, he will establish his kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth. But that's not for now. His kingdom is not of this world. So here's Jesus, the Jewish king. Jesus, the king of kings. Jesus, whose kingdom is not of this world. The final, the final thing I wish to draw your attention to this morning is the vital question that this miracle in verse 27 cries out for each of you to answer. The question is this, is this Jesus your king? Let's read verse 27. Go to the lake and throw out your line. Take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you will find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. Now, this is perhaps the least dramatic of Jesus' recorded miracles, but it is a miracle. I mean, think of just some of the possibilities as to how this happened. Just think of, of the thousands of fish in that particular lake. Jesus commands one specific fish to Peter's line at the right time. That's remarkable. And before that, Jesus would have had to command that one particular fish to go to perhaps the bottom of the lake to pick up a coin, a four drachma coin that was dropped in the lake. And Jesus would have had to direct that fish to the exact spot. Or maybe the fish had eaten a four drachma coin. And Jesus, though, had knowledge that this particular fish had a four drachma coin in its mouth. Either way, it's remarkable. Or... Another possibility, Jesus created the coin out of nothing and placed it in the fish. However Jesus did it, it's a remarkable miracle. And it demonstrates Jesus' authority over creation. And since it is a miracle, we are challenged to believe that he is the promised Messiah at least twice in the book of John, in John chapter 10, 38, and also in John 14, 11, Jesus says, listen, you need to believe in me at least because of the miracles. You may not understand or you may not accept my teaching, but when you see the miracles, you should believe that I am who I say I am. 
Well, here's another miracle. Do you believe? In addition to Jesus walking on water, calming a storm, and raising the dead to life, he directs a solitary fish to Peter's line with a four drachma coin in his mouth. Amazing. So do you believe now that Jesus is the Almighty, that Jesus is the Savior, that he's the one sent from heaven to forgive you of your sin? Who else but God could know about or command a single fish to do that? Do you believe Jesus? Have you embraced Jesus as your king? We're not all going to enjoy the joy of winning a gold medal. We can all enjoy eternal life with Jesus Christ. Be sure your faith and trust is not in ritual or worship. I've complimented you already for being here this morning, but but just coming to church does not save, does not forgive your sin. Just worshiping in the temple and having a calf die for your sin was, was not enough. It has to be through Jesus, faith in Jesus Christ. And that's the opportunity that presented to each of us today as a result of examining this Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, the Jewish King, the promised King, the King whose kingdom is not of this world, but the King who performed miracles so that you could be sure that he was the promised Messiah. Is he your King? Let's pray. Father God, what a privilege to talk to you, the miracle-making God, the creator of the world, uh, the one who who speaks and communicates constantly, so clearly, through creation, uh, through servants like Billy Graham. Father, through the everyday provision and, and gifts that you give us. Father, we're thankful We're grateful, but we pray that all of that will add up to salvation for each one of us and that will add up to good news that we share with a world that is lost, a world that is seeking, a world that is waiting for salvation, Father, and looking in the wrong places. Father, may you use us to direct them to the king of kings, this this Jewish king, this king whose, whose kingdom is not of this world, this miracle-working king who's the only one who can save them. Please, in your mercy, will you do that for us? Will you do that through us? Amen.